open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, if you want to put a finger in Isaiah chapter 11 and Revelation chapter 20. If you're just joining us um, on Saturday mornings and you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, you're kind of jumping into an inconvenient place. Uh, we've been looking at, we're going through a series of studies on, on uh, it's called eschatology or the doctrine of last things. And this is our fourth teaching in the, in, in the segment. And if you're just jumping in now, then you've kind of missed the progression. Now that doesn't mean that you're not going to get anything out of this morning's Bible study. It just means that there's going to be some blanks that need to be filled in uh, in some way. So um, regardless of whether you've been here or not, I would encourage uh, that you get the, the recordings of, of these, um, these sessions. Uh, and, and here's the reason why. is because in, it, you know, by design, in, in the preparation and, and the teaching of this, I'm giving out way more than it's possible for a human mind to grab a hold of uh, in one of these sessions, you know. And so it's, it's kind of like a, a ready reference, something to have and maybe go through again um, at another time or just have on file for, for when you need it or, or whatever. So I'd encourage you, whether you've been here or not, talk to Vinny. Vinny, raise your hand. And... Uh, <laughs> And get <laughs> the senior, Vinny senior, you know, and um, and that way uh, you can uh, catch up, keep up to speed with with what's going on in it. Now, um, by way of introduction this morning, let me say this: I think the number one uh, question or comment that I've received from you guys during this uh, study whether it's through email or conversation or anything, and it's, I've gotten more feedback from this than any other thing we've ever done in the history of men's discipleship. Uh, but the number one comment and question I'm getting is, why? What, what is the point? You know, I hear it in the comments as we talk at the end. You know, it, it, people are saying, why are we doing this? Or what is the benefit or the, the profit of, of knowing these things? Uh, because is it just simply something that, you know, we know? Or is there some applicational benefit to us as far as how this affects our Christian walk. And so I want to begin this morning by just answering that question again, uh, at least partially. And let me start by saying the reasons why not. Why aren't we doing this? What's not the reason or what we want to take away from, from this study? And, and number one is we do not want to become over-concerned or over-occupied with the subject of end times prophecy. That's not the point. So that that becomes the focus or the emphasis of our Christian experience. Um, that can happen. And you can become so, you know, end times crazy that, that, that the doctrine of last things replaces or uh, trumps or outprioritizes the gospel. The message of salvation that we've been given to bring to the world. It replaces evangelism. It replaces uh, our desire to, to know the will of God for our lives and to walk in it and the reason why. And we, we don't want that to happen. So that's not the reason that we become over-concerned with it. Second reason why not is that we, just because we want to be knowledgeable Pharisees, 
we want to have it all together. We want to be able to answer the questions. We want to be able to argue or debate or hold a position uh, on, on these things. And, and, and that, again, is not our, our objective and why we, we want. I, I believe that the Lord is going to, he has something in mind for how things are going to play out that nobody has thought of. <laughs> you know, and something there where, where, where everyone is going to be somewhat, wow, never saw it happen in that way or in this way, you know, uh, and he's going to have us all taken by surprise. And so, you know, the, the point of this isn't that we can say, well, we know, we have the answers. We know exactly how this is going to go down and, you know, and we can argue that point with anybody. That's not our purpose or our, our objective. So what is then? Why are we doing it? Six quick things. I remember when I first uh, was starting off as a carpenter. This is going back, um, I, I was 20, probably 21 years old. This is going back a, a little ways. And uh, I was working with a journeyman who had been in, in the trades for, for quite some time, and he kind of took me under his wing, and I had this ambitious nature to learn, you know, and the stuff. I remember one time he was talking to me, and he, and he said to me, he said, Nick, he said, one day, you're going to just realize, and you, won't, you won't, won't have realized how it happened or when it happened, but one day you're just going to wake up and you're going to realize that you just understand this industry. It's all going to make sense to you. The whole thing, soup to nuts, why we're doing, how it works, the order, the processes, it's all just going to make sense one day. Right now it's just, you know, we're building a wall or, you know, we're hanging sheetrock or we're putting in a ceiling, but someday you're going to see the whole picture and it's all going to make sense. I said, okay, and I never forgot that he said that. And I remember the day when I said, yeah, I think I get it. I understand. It, it makes sense to me, you know, how, how the processes work. And, and, and he was right. I think there's something about the kingdom of God. We're born again. We get saved. We know who Jesus is. Our sins are forgiven. The lights are on. The scripture makes sense. We begin to see the world in a different way. But we're like that apprentice, like I was as an apprentice. We see little pieces of things, but we don't see the whole picture of the kingdom of God, how it works. There's a kingdom. There's a king. There's citizens. There's a plan. There's, there's an economy of heaven. I mean, there's this whole other kingdom that's going on alongside of the physical realm that we live in. And as we grow in the Lord, we see more and more of it. And one day we come to a point where we say, I get it. I don't understand everything, we, you know, we never will, but I, I'm beginning to understand that, that, that this is real. There's a real kingdom. And, and the, the, the study of end times prophecy adds so much to our understanding of that kingdom and how it works. And even right now, even if we never see the end time scenario in our lifetime, just understanding it helps us to understand the framework of how the whole kingdom of God works and operates. It's going somewhere. There's a plan. It's not just happening, you know, subsisting along and, and, and it has no reason, you know. And so understanding it helps us to understand that. And so it's important for us. Number two, the doctrine of last things literally touches every other doctrine of importance in the Bible. I picture it in some ways as being concrete in the foundation of the kingdom. When you're building a house or a building or anything, the first thing is you make the foundation. You pour it concrete. Maybe you have a concrete floor that goes throughout. Now, each individual square inch of concrete might seem insignificant. You might chip it out of the floor and say, well, this little piece doesn't really matter that much. But that's not true. It's all 
all of it, all of the concrete in that foundation is serving to support the whole structure. And because this doctrine, this concept of the second coming, end times things, it touches every other point of theology. It touches the love of God. It touches the gospel and salvation. It touches the will of God for our lives and our destiny. It touches sanctification and growth. It touches evil and Satan, who, what, and why he is what he is. It touches the world and why it's evil and what's wrong with it. It, it, it literally touches all of those things. And so it's an integral part of the foundational things that make Christianity Christianity. And thus, it's important for us to understand. Number three, and I said this in our first study, but I'll reiterate it, is that it keeps us in perspective concerning the work that is to be done. We know that there's a time frame. There's a time limit. This world is not going to continue forever, that there is an ending point. And in that we're called to always be ready as though that moment could be right now. It keeps us focused on what it is that we're to be doing and how it is that we're to be living in light of the fact that it could be over just like that. And when we lose that perspective, we become apathetic. And, and, and that's number four, is that to, to be aware of these things gives to us an urgency for souls and it also guards us against that apathy from setting in because, hey, we need to be vigilant. It could be at any moment that we hear the trumpet sound and we don't want to be caught off guard. Number five, reason why we're doing this is because it's the clear command of Christ to know and be aware of these things. He told us to be aware of these things. 24 times throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, watch, in the context of his second coming, his return. We're told what's going to happen and we're told to be aware and Jesus basically gave us the warning he said this that if you're not aware if you're not watching and you can't watch if you don't know what's coming then you will be caught off guard and swept up in the deception that is to come and we're going to talk about that deception a little bit later on this morning and so he's told us to know these things and to watch and then number six and I think this might be like the icing on the cake, you know, as far as why we're doing this and why it's important. It's a wedding. Who of us would get engaged and just be content to be infinitely engaged? Hey, it's okay. We're engaged. I know one day we're going to be married. It doesn't really matter when. That's foolish. <laughs> no, I mean, Alexander, who's getting married this morning, this afternoon, you know, he's been looking forward to this day, counting it down, you know, prepared and ready. He's like, no, it's not enough to just be engaged. I want the, 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 the marriage to be complete. And that's what our relationship with the Lord is likened unto in the scripture. Right now, we've been given the ring, the betrothal of the Holy Spirit. We've been espoused, Paul said, to one bridegroom, that is to Christ. And we await his return the marriage supper of the Lamb, that all things might be set the way that they are going to be for eternity. And that is to drive us. We're to want Jesus to be coming because that's what we've been created for. That's the anticipation of life on this earth is that we might be united together with him for eternity. So if that's really the drive of our heart, then wouldn't it stand to reason that we would be concerned with knowing everything we can 
about when that might take place. If you were, well, let's pretend we're women for a minute and just a minute. <laughs> and, you, and you were engaged to a man who, who was then, you know, on a journey and you didn't know when he was going to return. But he wrote you letters that gave you clues. If you were really in love, you would decipher those letters and say, when's it going to be? And you'd be excited about it. It would always be in your mind. And so that's why we're studying these things because uh, of that. Now, that's kind of by way of introduction. We left off last time in the middle of the timeline. Human history on earth, according to God's plan, is basically broken into four segments. Number one, Israel. And the time span that God dealt with the world through the nation of Israel. We looked at that two weeks ago. Number two, the church. The church age started on the day of Pentecost. It goes all the way up until the rapture. It's the age that we are presently in right now. And we talked about that last week with its divisions and the prophecy that will be fulfilled and the signs that were near the end. So the church. Number three, which is where we'll pick up this morning, is a time period called the tribulation. The last seven years of man's history on this earth as we know it, where the Antichrist will come into power, we'll, we'll get into it in a few minutes, and then that will be followed by number four, which is the millennium. A thousand year period of time where Jesus Christ will rule and reign over the earth, Satan will be bound and there will be a time of peace and prosperity like there has never been before on the earth uh, since it was created. And so those are the four time segments that make up all of what God is going to do on planet earth. And so what is the tribulation as we jump back into this timeline and look at the last seven years of man's uh, time on the earth? Some other names for the tribulation that are given in the Bible are the indignation, which is another word for wrath, <laughs> which is part of what will be accomplished during that time. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. And that's important. Mark that in your minds, maybe in your notes. Because if you remember when we talked about Israel a couple weeks ago, there was 70 sevens remember 70 weeks 77 year segments and there was one seven year period that was left on Israel's time clock that has not yet been fulfilled if, you know if you don't not following me right there just get the tape you know but there are seven years left that God is going to yet again deal with Israel on the forefront of the stage center stage and that will be during the tribulation time so that's why it's called Jacob's Trouble, because they will go through that period of time, the Israel, Israelites, the Jews. It's also called the Day of the Lord, because it's the day that's been prophesied about when God will set things right, when the balances will be evened out, the scales will be set right, you know, and, and things will be repaid the right way. It's been prophesied of, and so it's called that way. And it's also called the 70th week of Daniel. Again, a reference to Israel's involvement in that. What are the purposes? What is God going to accomplish, his objectives, his to-do list during the tribulation? Number one, 
to wake up a nation. That is the Jews. He's brought them back into their land. We looked at that last week, Ezekiel 36 and 37. He's protected and preserved them while they're there. But they have yet to recognize God's doing of that. They think it's just political, coincidental, or circumstantial that they're back there in their land. But they have yet to recognize that it's actually God that has gathered them, brought them, and for a purpose and a reason. But during the tribulation time, when God deals again with his nation Israel, he will awaken them to his involvement in that. And also, then they will recognize that Jesus Christ was, in fact, their Messiah. Halfway through the tribulation, they're going to realize uh, that Jesus actually was the Messiah that he claimed to be. And so, part of what God's going to do during the tribulation is he's going to wake up a nation. He's going to wake up the Jews. The second thing, number two, God's objective, is to shake up the Gentiles. To shake up the Gentiles. That is, those that have rejected him, turned away from him, refused his offer of salvation, he will, on them, pour out wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. That it is that time, and we read about it in Revelation 6 through 19 there, what God is going to do as he shakes up the Gentiles. And part of the purpose of that is that they might yet get saved. And there will be a multitude of people that get saved during the tribulation period. And that's part of God's objective in doing it that way. Now, there's, that, that's a tricky subject, and we'll get into it a little bit more, the, the salvation of those during the tribulation in a little while. And then number three on God's objective list, purposes for the tribulation, is to even out the balance. Even as we already said, the day of the Lord. To make reconciliation for iniquity, that happened partially through Christ, but it will happen completely during the tribulation when those who rejected Christ will then be repaid for their sins through the wrath of God that comes. The Bible says, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That sin has a penalty. There are consequences to our actions, to the actions that we do. And the tribulation is the consequences that have been stored up for the past 2,000 years, being all poured out in concentrated measure upon the world during that last time. So those are the objectives, to wake up a nation, to shake up the Gentiles, and then to even out the balances and to make restitution for all things. Now, I pointed out already that it's a seven-year period of time. It is divided directly in half by God. Three-and-a-half-year segment in the beginning, and then a three-and-a-half-year segment at the end. The starting point of the tribulation is not the rapture. The beginning of the tribulation, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, is when the covenant is signed that allows the Jews to rebuild their temple and ushers in a seven-year period of peace in the Middle East. That has yet to happen, and it seems like something that's absolutely impossible. In fact, Zechariah the prophet tells us that it would be so impossible that anyone, he said he's going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all nations, and anyone who burdens himself with it will be cut in pieces. 
it, it will be such a, an impossible thing to do. But yet this man called the man of sin, the Antichrist, who will deceive the nations, he's going to be able to broker a deal, a seven-year deal, and when that covenant is signed, that's what marks the beginning of the tribulation uh, period. And that's where it begins. It starts with the signing of the covenant. Now, the judgment that God will pour out during that time consists of three different waves of judgment. They are the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. When you read Revelation chapter 6, through chapter 19, it highlights exactly what's going to happen during that period of time. It begins with seven seals. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we see a picture of heaven and the church in heaven. It says that John, who wrote, he says that he saw a multitude that was gathered around the throne that had been gathered out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, that's a clear picture of the church. We are the every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the church. And we're seen in heaven in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. And, and it tells us in that chapter that John wept much because he saw the scroll that represents the title deed to the earth, and he saw that there was no man that was worthy to open the scroll or to loose the seven seals that held it closed. He wept. He realized that the conditions to redeem the title deed to the earth could not be met by any man. No one had accomplished it. The conditions were a sinless life. And so he wept. But then an angel came to him and said, don't weep. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. He is worthy to loose the seals and open the scroll. He has met the terms of redemption. And it says, I looked. He's looking for the lion and he sees a lamb having been slain from the foundations of the world, bearing his wounds. And he took the scroll out of him who sat on the throne. And it's a perfect picture of Jesus taking the scroll. And it says that he broke the seals one by one. He opened the seals. He was worthy. He met the conditions. With each successive seal that's broken, a judgment is poured out on planet Earth. Those judgments are in Revelation chapter 6. You can read what happens every time a seal is broken and what happens on earth. By the way, did you know that there are spiritual strings attached to the deeds that are done on earth? When we pray, we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It happens in heaven first and then the result is on earth. You don't see that pictured anywhere better than in the book of Revelation. Because for everything that happens in heaven, there's something related to it that happens on earth. A seal is broken in heaven, there's something that happens on earth. A bowl is poured out in heaven, there's thunder, lightnings, and an earthquake on earth. And over and over again, you see this relationship between heaven and earth. And so the seals are broken. It's interesting and you can read this in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, which is the beginning of the tribulation explanation. The first seal, which is what starts the tribulation. When Jesus breaks the first seal on that scroll, the tribulation begins. You know what happens in the first seal? 
You, you should have finger in Revelation. We didn't even do Ephesians uh, 1, 1, but look at Revelation chapter 6. Let me show you this. Revelation 6, 1. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. That's the Antichrist. See, in Revelation 19, when Jesus Christ returns and he puts a stop, I'm getting ahead of myself, I know, but he puts a stop to the battle of Armageddon, he's riding on a white horse. He has a white robe. He's got a written on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. Out of his mouth goes a two-edged sword with which he defeats the nations. It's Jesus on the white horse. But here, there's another man on a white horse, not with a sword, but with a bow. Authority is given to him, not possessed by him. And he goes forth conquering and to conquer. This is not Jesus Christ. This is a counterfeit Christ. The savior on a white horse who's going to bring peace to a chaotic world. That's exactly what Antichrist is going to do. And that's why he will be received by the world as a savior. So the first thing... When the seal is broken, the rider on the white horse, it lines up perfectly with Daniel chapter 9 where he says that the covenant will be what begins the tribulation. That's what will usher Antichrist's rule onto the scene. And so it begins with this uh, covenant that Antichrist will, will make. Now, the, the three sets of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. After the seals are all broken, Seven trumpets, seven angels with seven trumpets will be brought to the front. And each of those trumpets will be blown one at a time. And as they are, judgments will then ensue on earth that kind of pick up the pace. You know, they they get a little bit more intense as, as they move through. And then finally, after those trumpets are completed, there are bowls, seven bowls or vials, which are, you know, pictured as concentrated vials full of God's wrath that are then poured out on the planet and those make up the final um, judgments of the book of Revelation culminating in the, the battle of Armageddon where Jesus Christ returns. Now, let me make a few points about the tribulation, uh, answer some questions maybe and bring some clarity to all of this. First of all, will people get saved during the tribulation period? That's a great question. Because, you know, we're, we're saying, hey, the end is near. And we're awaiting the rapture of the church when Jesus comes back to take us. But what about the people that are left behind, that go through the tribulation? Is there any hope for them to get saved? Can they come to Christ? And the answer to that is yes. People will get saved during the tribulation period. Uh, it's pictured, it's seen clearly. You know, it, we'll see it and we'll, we'll turn there. You can... Uh, in Revelation chapter 7. But, but first, let me read a scripture from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because some people will say, you know, if, uh, if the rapture happens, then I'll get saved. I'll, I'll give my life to the Lord when I see 
you know, millions of people suddenly disappear. That's when I'm going to make my decision and follow Christ. But listen to the warning that the Apostle Paul gives concerning that mentality. But I'll just wait and see, and then I'll get serious. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's the rapture, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now there's two things that he marks there in that verse that will precede the second coming. Number one is the falling away. And that is something that we have been talking about a lot and, and, and something that I think is of paramount importance for us to consider in the days in which we live. Is that the Bible says that in the last days, there will be many that will depart from the faith. Jesus said that because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy. He said that in the last days, perilous times will come. That men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, rude, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. And then he culminates it by saying, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, they'll think that they're right with God, but in reality, they're far from him. One of the marks of the last days is going to be a strong deception and delusion that will come over people and there will be a falling away. And I believe we're beginning to see that happen. We're watching the influence of evil take a firmer grip on the world in which we live. And I think we're headed for days when there will be an apostasy, people forsaking the Lord and turning away from him in a way in which we never thought could happen. He said there will be a falling away first. And then he says the man of sin uh, will be revealed. That's a reference to the Antichrist. And then he calls him the son of perdition or the son of waste. And then he describes him in verse 4. He says, Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits, in, sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the abomination of desolation that Matthew spoke of, that Daniel prophesied about. That will happen, listen carefully, exactly halfway into the tribulation period. The first three and a half years of the seven, he will be just a political savior. He'll be received as the, by the Jews as their Messiah. The world will give their allegiance to him. And there will be a sense of political peace on the planet. There will be divine chaos as God's breaking seals and pouring out bowls. And, you know, from heaven, it will be crazy. But politically, economically, socially, there will be peace for the first three and a half years. Then, at the midway point, he goes into the rebuilt temple of the Jews and he declares himself to be God and he demands to be worshipped. And at that point, the whole thing falls apart. The Jews don't play their part. They wake up and realize, hey, this man just set up an 
image in the temple and that's against our law. He's counterfeit. He's not real. And they forsake him and he launches a persecution against them. The vials of God's wrath begin to pour out and the world goes to hell, literally. In that last three and a half year period of time, it's called the great tribulation. The time Jesus said that no flesh could survive unless it was cut short. But that will happen what he says there in verse four, then verse five. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that is keeping this from happening. That he, Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness or sin is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, what is the restraining power of, or the restraining force in the world today that's keeping evil from spilling over the edge? It's the Holy Spirit in the church. Because Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And then he said, if the salt loses its savor, that, that is, if the salt loses its potency or its ability, what it does, then it is henceforth good for nothing. And the it there is not the salt, it's the world. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, then it is good for nothing. That is, the earth goes to waste. The Holy Spirit, and this, listen carefully again. I know I'm giving you a lot. I hope I'm not losing you too much. But listen, the Holy Spirit will not be completely taken out of the earth, even during the tribulation period. The Holy Spirit will still be present because, first of all, people will get saved. You can't get saved without the, the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is paramount in salvation. If you don't have the Spirit, the Bible says, then you're not His. So the Spirit will be here. Number two, Jesus said that when in the tribulation time, they bring you to testify. He said, don't premeditate what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit is going to give you the words. If the Holy Spirit's not here, he can't do that. So the Holy Spirit will be on earth. But here's the thing you've got to understand is that the Holy Spirit works through human agents on earth. God could save a thousand people right now in a, in a, in a desolate province of Africa if he wanted to. He chooses to use people. He sends people that are filled with his spirit with the message of the word in there and he uses them as his instruments to do his work. When the church is removed, the restraining power of evil is gone. The restrainer and, and evil will overflow. So he which restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way, the rapture. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Do you, do you notice that there in verse 8? that the lawless one will not be revealed until after the church has been removed. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an evidence that the rapture will happen prior to the tribulation. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And now watch this. This is our verse, verse 10. Notice this. And with all unrighteousness, or all, all unrighteous deception, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's the point. Will people get saved during the tribulation? Yes. But the deception is going to be so strong during that time, the odds are not in favor of those who dwell on planet Earth. The deception will be very great. Jesus said that Antichrist will be so deceptive in what he does that even the elect would fall for the deception. It's a powerful deception. Now, also, turn to Revelation 7. Number two concerning this question of will people get saved during the tribulation. Yes, but. They will not be a part of the church. And that makes a difference. In Revelation 7, look at verse 9. It says, and after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then, verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, so now speaking to John, who is receiving this vision, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that would be like an angel coming to you and asking you a question about something that's going on in heaven, right? I mean, you'd be like, I don't remember being told uh, that I was supposed to hold on to that information. You know, I kind of thought you would tell me, you know, why are you asking me this? The elder asks John, he says, who are these that are arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? In verse 14, and I said unto him, sir, you know, <laughs> So he's getting John into a conversation. Now, notice a couple things. Notice, first of all, John does not recognize them. If it was the church, John would know exactly who it is because John's a part of the church. He's already seen the church in heaven back in chapter five. He knows who they are. Who are these? The elder says, and John says, I don't know. Don't recognize them. And so he answers. The angel, verse 14, middle of the verse. He said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Those who got saved during the tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now watch this, verse 15, and let this make us tremble. Therefore, because they came out of the great tribulation, they are before the throne of God, meaning they're saved, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. 
I don't know if you picked it up, but they are not the bride. They're in heaven. They're saved. They're forgiven. They're accepted. But their role is to serve in the heavenly temple. They are not the bride. They're a different group than the church. They will be glad they're there. They will be full and satisfied. They will not have the weaknesses of human flesh. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than anyone on earth. But they are not the bride. And you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, have the highest privilege. And that's why Satan hates us. Because we occupy a position for eternity that's higher than anything he ever would have had. We're the bride of Christ. We're in Christ, not before the throne. We're in him. Do you understand? It's such an incredibly higher calling to be a part of the church than to just give your life to Christ or God after the church is raptured. And that's why it's so severe. Paul says, knowing the severity of God, we persuade men, we compel them, we shake them if need be. I've been reading the book of Acts and I'm amazed at how many times it says in the book of Acts that Paul persuaded them. It's so, so critical. So anyways, we're out of time and I didn't get through what I needed to, but let me get through the tribulation. We're almost there, another two minutes and, and uh, we'll open for questions. How do we know that the rapture happens before the tribulation? First of all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says clearly that we, the church, have not been appointed unto wrath. If, if the reason for the tribulation is to pour out God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world, our wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. The penalty for our sin was poured out upon him. He made atonement for it completely. He said, it is what? Finished. That's right. He didn't say it's almost done. I made a good start. He said, it is finished. And the full weight of God's wrath was poured out on him. And so we therefore stand before him complete and justified, our sin being paid for by Christ completely. And therefore we will not abide the wrath of God as it's poured out on the world. It's already been done on our behalf. The wrath of God will be for those who have not been saved by Christ. So we say a pre-trib rapture. Also, we would know the day and the hour. Well, we wouldn't know the hour, but we would know the day. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. But if the rapture was after the tribulation began, we would. Because Daniel tells us to the day when things are going to happen. And we'd be able to figure it out. We would just say, oh, okay, well, here's the day the covenant was signed. 1,260 days later, he's going to set himself up in the temple. And then 1,260 days later, boom. You know, and we would, we would know because he tells us. But he says it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to happen in a time you don't expect, you don't know. So the rapture happens before the tribulation begins. Everything, once the tribulation begins, you can map it out. Just like Daniel's 70 weeks. You, know, you could look at a calendar and figure it out. Number three. The church did not exist during the first 69 weeks of Israel's history. Church didn't exist. Wasn't on earth. It stands to reason that the church will not be on earth during the 70th week of Daniel. Maybe say that's a weak point, but it's a point nevertheless. 
And I'll say this about the pre-trib rapture. There are some that hold the view that the rapture is not pre-trib, but the rapture is pre-wrath. Maybe you've heard that term before. And it's not necessarily a middle tribulation view of the rapture, but what they're saying, what they say, those that hold that view, is that the first part of the tribulation is not the wrath of God. That the first part of the tribulation is just man's reaping what he sowed. And that the church will go through that part. And that before God's wrath is poured out, the trumpets and the bulls, that the church will be taken up. Now the reason I even bring that up to you is because I see the smallest possibility that that could happen that way. I don't think so. That's not my view, but I give it to you because, you know, we don't know all things and I don't want you to think I know all things, you know. The first coming of Christ didn't happen the way the Jews expected it and therefore they missed it. And it's very possible that the things concerning the second coming won't happen exactly the way we think. They're going to happen. And so I know for a fact we will not endure the wrath of God. How exactly? So I throw that out to you. One more thing to consider about the tribulation is this. If Revelation 6 through 19 describes the wrath of God in retribution for sin, and it does, that's what 6 through 19 is all about. And, and follow me here, and our wrath, the church, our wrath was absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross, then that means, listen to this, that what Jesus went through on the cross had to be at least equivalent to what takes place in Revelation 6 through 19. You understand that? In other words, when you read what took place, what's going to take place, during the tribulation, understand that in order for you to be saved from your sins, Jesus Christ had to endure an equivalent amount of what's described in chapters 6 through 19 in Revelation. And for you and I, that should open our eyes a little bit more to what exactly took place on the cross. It's huge to realize what we're not going to go through because Jesus went through it on our behalf. And that should make us grateful and fill us with appreciation and love for our Lord. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God even in him. Well, the tribulation ends with the battle of Armageddon. All nations are gathered, drawn to the valley of Megiddo, for one final confrontation. It's a winner-take-all, king of the hill, battle for the playground, winner walks away with the spoils. And it's during that war where the Bible says that the blood will flow to the horse's bridle, meaning the rivers will flow with blood up to the depth of a horse's neck. That Jesus will then come back, riding on a white horse, the church will be with him. He will fight against the nations with the sword of his mouth. He'll put an end to that battle. And that will mark the end of the tribulation. That is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is what, when the Bible talks about the second coming of Christ, that is what it's talking about. For you and I, we're waiting for the glorious appearing. 
the rapture of the church, when we're caught up. But the second coming, when he steps down on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives splits in two, that happens at the end of the tribulation period when he returns and ends the battle of Armageddon. Well, that's the end of segment number three of the timeline, the tribulation leaving only the millennium for us uh, to go through, which we'll look at next week.